Yeah, well, we only started back in the house about five years ago. I'm well down anyway. That's that's one one side anyway. I haven't really, I haven't, I haven't been winning. You know, my life been. That's it. I don't know how to pick the mill. All of the farms. There's only one person that wins the bogey. That's true. The familiar lament of the gambling man. Damon Runyon certainly knew what he was talking about when he named one of his Broadway characters Regret the Horse Player. The man we just heard is typical of thousands of small gamblers. What do the bookies think of the chances of their customers? Joe Cunningham. The small man now in SP, I think he realises at 20% he is no chance of winning. The poor old punter at 20% is getting very, very little return for his money. Uh, for instance, a small punter having 10 pence on per race, his first five 10 pence bets go down. He has really backed six losers. And if he thinks about that, uh, I think he will just throw his hat at it. Terry Rogers is another vastly experienced bookmaker. I made a mistake in 1965, I think it was, when the levy went from 2.5% to 5%. I didn't think people would back horses on course because I wouldn't do it myself. And I gradually eased off. I didn't realise that people were so stupid as to back horses at 5% and now at 6%. I think it's, they've no earthly way of winning. They can't possibly win with, it, with that high of a drain. If you're playing a game of cards and you keep taking 5% out of the pot, and the, 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 there's nothing left. What is this urge, then, that makes a reasonably sane man bet on a losing proposition? I put the question to Professor John McKenna, a psychologist. Some people certainly could regard gambling as a vice. Um, I wouldn't be among those who would look upon gambling as a vice, nor... For the same token, could I look upon it as an appetite or an instinct in human nature? Uh, I think it's part of normal behaviour to take a chance. To take a chance, to try in some way to influence or even predict the future, seems to be a deep-seated human urge. And there are plenty of outlets for it. Horses, dogs, cards, casinos, bingo, sweepstakes, pools, slot machines, even if all else fails in the old phrase, two flies going up a wall. The psychologists don't categorise gambling as a vice because that's not their province. But in a social context, it would seem to be wasteful, if not evil, and, of course, it can become compulsive. Is there moral justification, then, for allowing gambling on a legal basis at all? Dr Pat Taberdy is a psychiatrist. Most households have a gamble of some kind every so often. The the, the Grand National or or the boat, whatever's on television, then a a little flutter. And... uh, this is usually how a, a gambler, a compulsive gambler, begins off in the beginning, in, the, in, in themselves, but they gradually lose control completely. Many people say, well, if gambling can lead to compulsive gambling, why shouldn't we abolish gambling completely? The answer to that is, why should the whole world uh, revolve around one or two people? This is what lay people say. Why spoil everything because one or two people can't control themselves? It's like with the alcoholic problem. Just because a certain percentage of people who drink alcohol become alcoholics, why should the whole of society suffer? Uh, I don't know what the answer is. The last few years have seen an enormous increase in gambling in Ireland, which is surprising in view of our economic situation. To give just one example, the total turnover at the Galway races this year was half a million pounds, just twice what it had been the year before. 
and that takes no account of the money bet with bookmakers. You'd wonder how this could happen in a country whose economy, despite belt tightening, is sagging badly. It's really started in the early part of 1974 when the recession, people finally realised there was a recession after the six-day war, whatever it was, with the oil men or whatever. The price of oil went up and everything began to get affected and the people could feel the recession coming, or depression, whatever they call it, and always the beginning of a recession or depression, uh, gambling increases because people they get slightly frightened, they need something, we need more, we haven't got enough, so they will gamble. They will even take chances in their business if they can, but if they can't take a chance in their business, they will go to bookmakers or even go to, across to England to casinos or go to Monte Carlo. They, they've always, throughout history, they, when the recession came, gambling increased for a period of time. But quite apart from gambling attributable to the recession, there must be money coming from other sources. Well, there's a lot of money in circulation at present because they're... There are people who are getting money now. I don't know, it's nothing to do with gambling. I don't know if I should say this even, but there's a lot of people getting money under false pretenses eh, and they're getting handouts, Santa Claus handouts, and they're drawing pay-related and they're doing mixers. Eh, there's so much unemployment, but I've looked for to get people to go and work for me in various places and I find it impossible to get them. And they won't work for you unless they're getting it free of tax, so I, I can't get the people to work for me. And you reckon, I reckon this, this money is... is this money is get, getting back into racing, getting back in, because they, they can't lodge it in the bank, they can't do anything with it, so it'll finally find some outlet somewhere. This is hot know, money, Hot money, it? yes, hot money. There's a lot of hot money has come out in the last couple of years, as well as the cause of the recession. Money has appeared. People come back from England, get away from there, and they find they can't lodge it here, and so they, they, they go gambling with it. Money will always burn a hole in a person's pocket. Oh, big gambling now... On the, on the track, certainly it's a way above what it's ever been. A normal kind of a bet now. It's not, it's not too unusual. Two, three, four thousand pound bets on the, on the track, as I understand it. The Greyhound business on the track's the same thing. But uh, there's none of that kind of betting in SP over the counter. Nobody comes in with 50 pounds or 100 pounds now over the counter man comes in to have a hundred pounds on a horse, he's got to pay a hundred and twenty pounds. And he's just not interested. So, at least on the racetrack, if not on the starting price office, there's obviously a buoyant betting market here. But quite a share of the big money is going elsewhere. I think that the bookmakers and the punters who bet with bookmakers in the Republic are very badly treated because the rate of taxation in Southern Ireland is 20% on off-course betting and the big punter can get on without tax or he can get on with by paying 8% tax. All he's got to do is pick up a telephone and dial 084 and he's true to Belfast or 031 and he's true to England and there are even bookmakers in England who will allow them on without tax and there are people who have set themselves up as bookmakers since last January. There were a few before last January, but there was not that many. But since last January, you've got more amateur bookmakers than you could possibly believe. I personally, if they did keep a check in relation to the values of monies and the inflation, that the revenue are not getting what they should be getting or would be getting if they'd left it at 15% or brought it down to 10 Joe Cunningham agrees with Terry Rogers. The big money, the really big money, uh, has gone out of the country, is going out of the country. The differential between SP bookmakers here and in England, 
8% in England, you don't have to pay it on even, and 20% here. So if a person has money, uh, there's not much difficulty creating credit facilities in England. You can make a phone call, you can even reverse the charges, and you don't have to pay on the tax that the horse loses. Here you're in for 20%. So you need to be philanthropic to kind of uh, back horses here uh, for big money. Apart from racing, there are many other opportunities for big gambling. Poker is one outlet. All in jackpot we were playing. Uh, I think it was, it varied from £10 a man in, or it might have been a fifth, can't remember exactly what it was, approximately a £50, pound, £50 pound a deal, I think it was. It might have been 10, I think it was £10 a man in, and past occasion, which made it £20 a man in. And if they weren't open, then it'd be another £10 a man in. There were pots as high as £1,500, £1,000. There weren't not many of them, but they did take place. The only thing I did still read with it was that it took place in the foyer, in the port, in the hotel, in the lounge of the hotel. Uh, there had been another game earlier where there were chips used, and that took place in a suite. But that game broke up at uh, two o'clock. It was arranged to break up at two o'clock, and the other game only started about half past twelve and went on until seven o'clock the next day or eight o'clock the next day. People only time to get a wash and get their breakfast and go to the races. But it was mostly punters that played. The people say bookmakers were playing. There was only two bookmakers played in the game. Oh, sorry, there's three. It's only one man. He wouldn't class him as a bookmaker. He doesn't stand up on the course, but he is a bookmaker. He's in the, a turf account, possibly. <laughs> would you get many runners at that kind of game? You'd be surprised the number of people who'd like to play in that game, and you'd be surprised the number of people who would get into that game just to say they played with certain people and would be quite willing even to lose 100 or 200 pounds to say they participated in the game. People are very vain in matters like that, uh, which is unfortunate for themselves. I like playing a game of cards, but I always maintain that the cards should be cut from middle to top, and I won't play unless they are cut middle to top, because that breaks any possible shuffle or set that can be in a card that I know of. Trust everybody, but always have the cards cut. While I was talking to Terry Rogers about gambling, he came up with some surprising statistics about a form of gambling that has all but disappeared from the public eye. There used to be great pitch-and-toss schools in Dublin, especially around Ballybuck, eh, years ago, but they've gone. Then up at the Phoenix Park, but They've gone there. Now, the pitch-and-toss schools have now moved to... Uh, possibly in Kildare. There's a big game that takes place in Kildare. Cavan was a great place. It was around Shercock years ago. There was always a big game of toss, tossing. Uh, quite large amounts of money. Even there's a big game even takes place. I'm not going to say where it is because it might break the people's values, but the people even in the game might even put a motor car up and the, the fellow that's running the game, value 1972... Uh, Ford Escort value so and so that's the value of the car that's the car and that's it they even gamble the cars there's quite a lot of it goes on in but only even certain people amongst themselves matter of fact I was at a game last Sunday it started at a uh, during the interval at a coursing meeting and one man in about five six tosses is all he had he got over 800 pounds but if he'd have gone faster at it he would have people wanted to bet uh, he'd have got a lot more with the number of times he headed them the big money people in gambling are removed only in degree from the man on the street who has his tenpence doubles and trebles in the bookmaker's shop. The small man's memories are usually of small but persistent losses. The bookie has a lot of me money anyway. Especially Teddy Rogers, you know. We're over the period now, fellas in good jobs all over the country. To lose an awful lot of money over the period. They might win one or two weeks, but then... Or they have a long spell of losing, you know. So they're what they call suckers. 
What keeps the sucker going then when he knows that in the long run he's bound to lose? The instinct to win all the time. You come in here with the intention to clean it up. That's the first mistake you're going to make. Because uh, you might get a few bad today, but tomorrow's always another day. And the whole idea with racing as it goes, you take racing in general. You come in here and you're, you, you get that miserable that you don't need to buy a bootlace, you said. You want to keep the few bob all the time with the horses. <laughs> so unless you're prepared to pick up the few quid and go out, do a couple of cross-offs and travels, forget about them. There's not a thing wrong with that. But to come in and have a float of five here and five there, it becomes like pennies. Just keep moving. Then you go out and discuss it then. Never again until the next day. Or do you get a few bob again? Put like that, a few bob sounds harmless enough. But it can add up. Well, I've lost thousands of pounds on it. Thousands. You think you're going to get the winner. You, you get you get two or three, but Christ almighty, you, if you get two or three today, you might wait a month to get another one. Gee, you, you never win. You cannot win. You cannot beat the bookie. The bookie has so many gimmicks to encourage you to, to back horses that you think you're going to get something. But you'll, you'll never get anything. And you keep hoping all the time that you might eventually come up with a big one. You'll never come up with it. Never. All you do is keep forking into your pockets, forking out. And I've, I've, often, I've often been in the betting shop and say, well, I've a fiver left, I'll go up. I lay out this fiver. I must, I must, I must get the money back. But you never get it back. You never get it back. I, I'm gambling now for 26 years. And over that period of time, I'd hate to think of the amount of money I've lost. But there's no way people could get the money back. If, if, if you were to save the money that you gamble, you'd, you'd be rich. For most people, gambling is a fairly harmless, if expensive, hobby. For others, it becomes a problem. A person called Morn divided the, the uh, gambling problem a little bit like a man called Jelinek divided the alcoholic problem into various types to give us a better understanding of what type a person comes under. And the three main types are the neurotic gambler. This is more of, of, of a person who's under emotional stress, will gamble uh, to relieve the stress. There's the psychopathic type of person who has... This is the irresponsible individual who is irresponsible in all aspects of his or her life, and gambling is just a part of his irresponsibility. But the one we see nowadays who come for, for therapy is the compulsive gambler. They're often called compulsive losers because win, lose, or draw they have achieved the, the end result of their uh, gambling by having the uncertainty. The weight between the actual placing of a bet and hearing the result is what seems to be the, the motivation behind their gambling. And many gamblers, they, they, they will lose everything and still feel relief once they have the bet placed and the tension achieved. I started at nine when I used to go up to the park and do a bit of work at the races. I used to lead out a few horses, so signs that I got into heard about all the big money. I used to spend my wages, the, the small money I got at the time, and when that went, in order to still have money and to live up to my name, I started to steal. I stole so much that I was caught. I had a lot of, I had a lot of convictions up against me. I went up and I got sent to an institution until I was 16. I came out and I started a job, very good job to me, but I went back to my normal habits. Stealing, get gambling, cards, everything, dog tracks, the lot. 
I was only 16 at the time, 17, 18. I went to England. I'd done worse crimes there than I ever even thought possible that I would have done over here. I was caught on my first offence over there and I was sentenced to five years. When I was in prison, I used to do a lot. I always thought, they're all anti-Irish. I just wanted, I thought I was the man myself. I didn't think, no, they could never tame me. But they did. When I was in prison, I lost a lot of time for running a book. For money, for cigarettes inside. So signs I lost a year of emission. I came out and I was put on aftercare. But I still didn't want to know anything about aftercare. I wanted to go back to my old habits, my old routine. I went back to gambling, heavier than ever. Lost jobs, numerous jobs over gambling. So signs I never went back to thieving for it because I was earning good money that I could afford to lose what I earned gambling. There was a time I started and the gambling or the thieving started to come back into me to enforce this gambling habit. It was just all for gambling, nothing for nobody else, just gambling, dog tracks, cards, racing, the lot. I wanted to have big bets to win big money and have big cards. So signs you never have nothing. The wife of one gambler I spoke to was married for two years before she realised that her husband was in trouble. I knew my husband gambled before I married him, but I considered him to be a social gambler. After we got married, he used to stay out at night, maybe till small hours of the morning. We were about nine months married when he told me money I had given him for carpets and curtains and that hadn't gone for that while the carpets and curtains were there the money had gone gambling things weren't paid for and he was changing his job in fact two years later I learned he'd lost his job then the abscesses began getting longer I didn't know he was gambling but I knew there was something wrong our marriage was suffering very badly we had one child and eventually he disappeared and when he disappeared I discovered he owed thousands of pounds but how is it possible for a husband to keep a secret of that sort from his wife? Well, I didn't realise until later on. He told me then how he had an arrangement with the postman. Any official-looking letters were delivered to him on a Saturday morning. By appointment, he met the postman down the road somewhere, gave him a few cigarettes, and personal letters came to the house. Uh, I wasn't allowed to open any letters, and this, to me, I couldn't believe it because in my mother's house, everything was put there. Everyone read it. You gave everyone your letters. I was never allowed to do that. He'd always be waiting for the postman in the mornings, raised to the door and things stuffed in his pockets. And uh, We used to get these mysterious knocks at the door. It'd be always a man looking for him or that. He always, you see, they are con men. Because they're compulsive gamblers, they're compulsive liars. And they con people and they could con their wives and that. They're very likeable people, and most of them are very clever. And they work very hard at concealing this. Some wives know it's no secret. Most of them don't. It's more hidden illness than alcoholism because uh, it doesn't show. All we see, all the uh, public at large would see, would be the lifestyle of the family deteriorating. And... uh, the fellow involved probably being fired from his job for embezzlement 
probably getting jailed for, for fraud. And the family, the first they know about it is that suddenly he's up in court and they didn't know about it. It's a very hidden disease. If I, should, if I use the word disease, it's a very hidden problem. My husband always was a very good person, very kind, very gentle. I was in bed for months before our first baby was born and during the daytime he was supposed to be out sick but it was afterwards I learned he'd lost his job. During the day he would wash, cook, sew, shop, anything for me, nothing was ever too much trouble. Tea time would come and he was gone, off until the small hours of the morning. He was out of control of himself. Once there was something going on, dogs or horses, he couldn't control himself. He told me afterwards he remembers one winter night I was sitting at the fire and it was snowing. And he said for the first time he felt I would love to be able to sit in tonight, but I can't. I spoke to one girl last week who had a problem with another form of gambling. By Christmas I had lost all my savings and I hadn't eaten for, from October until Christmas. When I sat down to my Christmas dinner, I couldn't eat it. My hair was nearly falling out. Uh, all your money was going on the slot machine? All my money. All my savings was gone at that stage. All my wages. I had to borrow money to buy my Christmas presents that year. And I had to borrow money to go home. I got money from my brother that Christmas. I came back. I vowed I wouldn't go near the slot machines again. A fortnight later I was back on them. Worse than ever. Every time I pulled the lever, I felt the next one was going to hit the jackpot. The the person with compulsive with a compulsive gambling problem usually remains somewhat over optimistic and lives in a, a grandiose dream world for a surprisingly long time, until remorse and guilt guilt feelings, uh, coupled with worry about his or her hopeless uh, financial situation, may lead to a serious depression and sometimes, unfortunately, uh, into suicidal attempts. When I came out from the, the uh, slot machines one night, I spent all my money. I'd spent the evening there. I was driving a motorbike. Uh, I didn't care who I hit, what I did on the way home. I deliberately attempted to commit suicide by going through the traffic lights. There was a bus coming and the bus had to mount the footpath to avoid me. The next morning when I woke up I was delighted. It was a mishap. I didn't want to punish my friends for the things that were going wrong with me. How does compulsive gambling come about? How does a person get hooked? There are certain modes of behaviour which are originally based on neurotic psychodynamics which tend to gain momentum and they assume the character of a compulsion. But this isn't restricted just to gambling. You see the same kind of phenomenon takes place with compulsive drinking, when you suffer from alcoholism, with uh, uh, drug addiction, and with uh, sexual perversions. The Psychologist's View 
The psychiatrist, too, had something to say on the question of addiction. The World Health Organization had an expert committee formed in 57, and they named the following four features as characteristics of addiction. The first was a desire or compulsion to continue taking the drug and to obtain it by any means. The second was a tendency to increase the dose. And the third was a psychological and a physical dependence on the drug. And the fourth was a detrimental effect on the individual and society. Now, if we replace the word drug for gambling, you have gambling uh, as defined is an addiction. Once the addiction is established, the compulsive gambler needs more and more money. If people win money, they tend to spend more. If they lose money, the compulsive gambler tries to make up his make up his uh, losses by increasing his bet. And of course, this this is really the neurotic paradox. They keep on repeating actions that are ultimately going to ruin them. And uh, this is often the paradox you find in neurotic behaviour. Much the same thing with the compulsive drinker, despite the fact they may have been told many times that they're going to suffer brain damage or liver damage, but they go on drinking. And the drinking is to allay anxiety, to stave off anxiety, but they have no insight into the long-term effects, and similarly the compulsive gambler who goes on increasing his bed is trying to allay his anxiety and his fears. And it's when you get to this stage in drinking or in gambling, you certainly can't cure yourself without some help and without some insight into the long-term effects of your neurotic behaviour. Part of the neurotic problem is evident in the gambler's outlook on money. Well, I think when a man is gambling, the money he uses to gamble is purely money for bets. It would be uh, lumped, we'll say £5 would be a £5 bet, it wouldn't be £5 notes. My husband wouldn't buy himself a shirt or a pair of socks or anything like that. At the same time, he could spend hundreds of pounds on a bet. The first Easter we were married, we were married four months, three months at Easter. Uh, we had nothing on the floors, naturally. We had a house, all right. He bought me a bottle of sherry on Holy Thursday. And I was working, and we were talking about buying our first carpet and looking forward to it. I didn't know until I went to GA two years later that he had 500 and something pounds cash in a drawer upstairs. And, of course, he couldn't do anything with it holy or Good Friday. I don't know about Easter Saturday, but he told me it was the longest weekend he ever put in because there was nothing to do. He couldn't buy me anything big. I'd wonder where the money came from. So, really, any big money they get has to go back gambling if the wife doesn't know. And a wife won't, funnily enough, whether or not she's a member of Gammonon, doesn't want money that's got that way. It causes too much unhappiness. How do bookmakers react to this terrible problem? Those people are compulsive gamblers. I'm very sympathetic with them, just like alcoholics. And they give bookmakers a bad name, unfortunately, because they're the people that get blamed. But bookmakers are sympathetic towards compulsive gamblers. Can you recognise the compulsive gamblers? You can after a while. They get pleasure in losing just as well as they get pleasure in winning. That you'll see that in them. That's... How do you handle them once you've come to recognise that they are compulsive? Well... There is one person I maintain is a very compulsive gambler in this country and uh, his 
I would like this business, but I refuse to handle it under any shape or form, even from his agents. I have left instructions. Don't attempt even to get on with me because I'll not take any of your business. That's the way and I this, this is purely because he is a compulsive gambler? Yes, purely because he's a compulsive gambler. I don't want to be parked in some possible ruin that may come in the future. He survived because he's clever, but good luck to him. But that's not the reason why I stopped. As I think it will eventually happen to him. I'm not going to mention the person's name because I think it would be unfair. A lot of this going in over one's head, I think, is connected with credit betting. How do you regard credit betting? Should it be allowed at all? Credit betting, there should be... A person should make an application to a bookmaker and declare what limit he wants. And the bookmaker should come to an agreement of what limit he's going to give him and then he should have the moral courage to control him to that particular limit. If the bookmaker doesn't control him and the man gets out of control and doesn't get paid, the bookmaker is to blame, not the punter. I always, always maintain that. Yeah, well, I think in a way, you know, every punter that comes in on a regular basis into an SP office whether he's having five pence on or 25 pence on every other race, he is a compulsive gambler, possibly without realising it. A lot of these people possibly are old-age pensioners. The answer could be that it's a social uh, situation, somewhere to go in the afternoon rather than spend his time in the, in the pubs. Where does he go, an old-age pensioner? That is a few quid each week. Uh, but these people, I'd say, would be compulsive gamblers, but not uh, in the extreme sense. Uh, I've seen the, the extreme compulsive gambler, and uh, he's not thinking about food for the weekend. Uh, every penny he's got in his pocket, he's going to kind of uh, speculate, regardless of the consequences. And if it means taking extreme steps, even kind of criminal steps, he'll go out and try and find money to gamble. His values seem to be all wrong. How best can the compulsive gambler's values be put right? There is no cure. There is treatment, the same as in alcoholism. But a gambler, once he has come to terms with the fact that he has a gambling problem, must realise that this is a problem he has control over. He or she has control over. And no medications or what have you from a psychiatrist or anybody else can cure him. But if they can realise that this is an illness which their hands, which is the control is in their own hands, I think they're halfway to getting better. It's what we call developing insight. If a person understands that what they're doing is not really their fault, it's part of an illness, then they are halfway to accepting that they can cure it themselves. And I direct all people to come to me with this problem towards the Gamblers Anonymous uh, people who, when they go along there, there is great relief in realising that their behaviour which they thought was very abnormal, is common to a certain group. And the relief they get from understanding that they haven't been complete wasters, that there are others doing the same thing and there are others who are now in, in commas cured. I think this is uh, the major part of their battle back to normality. This is supportive therapy, really? Purely. Uh, like the, the people with the alcoholic problem, uh, when they realise that what they've been doing they think it's very abnormal and they're ashamed and they can't talk about it. But when they hear somebody else describing almost exactly their own behaviour, they feel a certain amount of relief and they therefore are able to unburden themselves to these people. And with a kind of a group support, they go along, they meet once or twice a week if necessary to um, support each other.
Psychiatrist Dr. Taberty sends compulsive gamblers to Gamblers Anonymous. This is a fellowship of men and women who have joined together to do something about their own gambling problem and to help other compulsive gamblers do the same. I asked Professor McKenna for his opinion of the worth of the organisation. Well, I haven't had sufficient experience of associations of Gamblers Anonymous, but certainly if they are as effective as Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe that could be very helpful to many people who suffer from compulsions because they are most effective with the case of alcoholics. How does the therapy work? Simply one supporting another? Well, I think that's largely social support of this nature is gained from joining in a group. And, of course, this is an age-old way of helping people with their problems is to give them social support. And it's very, very difficult to get social support in large urban complexes. Uh, when you have a, an association like Gam um, Alcoholics Anonymous, they are recreating the kind of things that went on in simpler modes of living in the past. I came to the Samaritans when I thought I was at the end. I was only 23. I went to the Samaritans and I thought there was no chance left for me in life. I just seen the rest of the lads going out with girls, working. I had nothing to show for all the work I'd done. I always worked hard, but I never had nothing to show for the Samaritans put me on to Gamblers Anonymous and I am only Gamblers Anonymous two weeks and I feel like I'm only 16 again. I really, I really feel it and so signs in two weeks I'm nearly starting up my own little business now. I'm making a few pounds every day but I'm enjoying it. I am a compulsive gambler and like most compulsive gamblers I started gambling early in life and... Uh, Indeed, <clears throat> until I came to Gamblers Anonymous, I can say gambling dominated my life. I lived for gambling, and as a result of it, I suffered enormously myself in my personal character, and I made other people uh, close to me suffer as well. And um, for this, of course, I'm sorry, but I realised that I wasn't fully responsible about six and a half years ago, I came to Gamblers Anonymous when I was at the end of my tether. I had no other sources of finance open to me for gambling, and uh, I think, really, I was sickened by the whole mess that I had made of my life. And on the advice of friends, I turned to Gamblers Anonymous for help. I never regret that day. Really, it made a remarkable, has made a remarkable change in my life. <clears throat> I didn't know what to expect in the organisation. It was a name to me. What I did find when I came to the first meeting, a number of men, different walks in life, different age groups, all having one common problem, each and every one of them a compulsive gambler. I listened to what they had to say, the stories of their lives. I could see the pattern of my own life in, in every one of them. They had done the same things, much the same things as I had done. Their lives in general had been of the same pattern as mine. I could identify with them and I said to myself, yes, I belong to these. I am one of these. When I joined Gamblers Anonymous, I knew after the first night that I had done something positive towards rectifying my way of life. The 
people in Gamblers Anonymous, I can identify with them. They're very kind and helpful to me. They understand me and particularly those members who have been there for years, haven't gambled in years and they're still there helping people like me. Uh, they're the people I've most admiration for and now I look forward to going to GA meetings. I would like other people, particularly women, who may feel bashful about joining. There's great sympathy and understanding there. Gamblers Anonymous have a sister organisation called Gamanon for relatives of gamblers. The first step for the wife when she goes into Gamanon is she realises she is not responsible for her husband's problem and that's a very, very big help. You go in completely beaten right into the ground and feeling it's all your fault. I certainly felt my husband must have hated me to behave the way he did. And it's a great relief to go in and the heart goes very quickly and then you can get down to working your... It's the way back to normal living for both. First step, you realise you've no control over him, you're not responsible, and that you leave him and his gambling to a GA. When I went in then, after I heard, after I learned of the problem, I thought, oh, this fellow now, I'm going to have to learn how to handle him. He's a gambler. But then, with the help of Gammonon, I learned that, first of all, he's an individual. Next, he's my husband, and next, he's a gambler, that it can't take over our lives completely. And it may seem strange to say now, there are days it never crosses my mind. Well, I'm well aware of it. it. It doesn't eat into everything in our married lives. We're more happy now than ever we were. The people who have joined these organisations are probably, paradoxically, the successful ones. They've come to recognise their problem and they're taking the only remedial action available to those with the gambling urge, appetite, vice or disease. There seems to be some doubt about how exactly it should be categorised. They live each day as it comes, and they have a prayer printed on their pamphlets. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. These may be the lucky ones. Luckier, anyway, than those who still take gambling seriously and who still hope for the one great win. Yeah, the started to come back into me to enforce this gambling habit. It was just all for gambling, nothing for nobody else, just gambling, dog tracks, cards, racing, the lot. I wanted to have big bets to win big money and have big cars. So, science, you never have nothing. <laughs>